0: Well, good morning again. We are continuing our study in the book of Matthew this morning. And so I would encourage you, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, grab that pew Bible in front of you. It's the black one. And turn to page 810. We are in Matthew chapter 5, tying up the loose ends on the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5, Verses 13 through 16. And would you stand with me one last time this morning as we read God's Word together? You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? who is in heaven. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word this morning to know you and to know who we are. And we... We understand that that we can't know who we are were it not for how you have instructed us, have shown us who we are through your word. So we pray this morning that we would have understanding that as we hear the words of our Savior speaking to us, that we wouldn't resist it, that we wouldn't try to explain away what he has clearly told us. But that we would receive it. And that we would receive what our Savior has given us with gladness and joy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is, this is one of those passages that, that many of us are very familiar with isn't it? In fact, I would say we're so familiar with this passage that I think we often overlook it for what it's meant to be. Sometimes, as as Christians, especially those of us who have been Christians for a while, we can can tend to let these teachings almost become cliche. Like, cliche little statements that that maybe motivated us in the past, at some point in, in, in our walk with Christ, but over time have sort of kind of lost their influence with us part of that I believe is because this, this text is, feels like a complete package it feels like something that can be easily removed from its context and so we often do that and, and when it's that way it can be sort of a, a rah rah statement can't it go get them one of those, those things that we've, we've heard many times before. And so when we think of it that, that way, we think, yes, we're supposed to be salt, we're supposed to be light, but I'm not always that way, and nothing bad has come of it, right? And so we just kind of continue as, as we are. But, but when we see it this morning, we, we should look at, at it sort of like a, a check engine light shouldn't we? This is God revealing to us something that's going on in our hearts, and we should look at it and receive it that way. So I want to challenge you this morning to hear Jesus's teaching anew, like you've not heard it before. before. So it's almost like we're going to speak it in a new language for you. Let this text come to you the way that it was written, the way that it was meant to be received. If you think about it, this, what we've just read, is really the concluding paragraph to the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. Concluding paragraphs to introductions are not meant to be standalone teachings, especially in sermons. If we read this section the way that it was meant to be read, here's what we'll see, alright? So, Keep your Bibles open, follow with me. First, first of all, it comes immediately following Jesus' teaching about persecution, which was sort of the climax of the Beatitudes that we studied last week. See, see if it makes a difference when we read it like this. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. We're in Matthew 5, 11 there, and now we're in verse 12 and Jesus says rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you you are the salt of the earth see how that fits if we read it like that it helps us to remember that being the salt of the earth might have something to do with being persecuted at the same time this teaching comes right before Jesus is teaching about the law. So let's read the last sentence, beginning in verse 16, in its scriptural context. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You see the connection here that this helps us to remember that jesus is fulfilling the law and the prophets in all that he does in all that he teaches including when he teaches us about salt and light that that's the framework that we have here it's literally the molding that goes around this picture of salt and light And it goes a really long way in helping us to understand why this passage is here. It's not just randomly inserted into Jesus' sermon as a motivational proverb. It's intricately intertwined into what he's teaching us throughout his sermon. So what I'm going to do this morning is break up for us, into, into three sections, and you have them in your notes if you, if you have that in your bulletin. Three sections that aren't necessarily in verse order, but we're going to look at instead the, the, the logical order, the logical argument that Jesus is making, because he is logical. He does speak to us from, from a strong sense of reason. And so that's how we're going to understand, understand what he's telling us. He first shows us who we are. Then he shows us how who we are cannot be undone. It can't be lessened. And then he shows us why we are the way we are. What's the purpose of us being made salt and light? So let's look at that first part. Who we are in Christ. Well there are two statements in this passage that define who we are. You probably saw them pretty clearly. At the beginning of verse 13 we see... You are the salt of the earth. So we're the salt of the earth. And then in verse 14. You are the light of the world. Christians. Christ followers. Are the salt of the earth. And they are the light of the world. That's a statement of fact. He did not say. You are called to be. Salt of the earth called to be light of the world as if somehow in the future maybe we can become those things it's not a statement of potential it's a statement of fact right now reality you are salt you are light and it is in the context of being of christians being told there's the kingdom of heaven do you remember that from last week That's important. If you are in Christ, you are salt and light. It is an inescapable identity if you truly are a Christian. And we, we, okay, Dustin, I get that, but what does that mean? (laughs) That identity is pretty meaningless if we just let it sit there as, as like a vague metaphor, isn't it? We have to answer the question, Why? in order to do justice to this passage in order to gain understanding from what Jesus is telling us why did Jesus use salt and light as the metaphors for how to describe Christians was he he drawing from some common knowledge that they had was this just a random illustration that, that kind of worked like an analogy that he came up with on the fly well think about the context again All right. Jesus just talked about persecution and he's about to talk about how he has come to fulfill the law and the prophets. So persecution might have something to do with this and fulfilling prophecy might have something to do with this. And if you've been with us for any period of time while we've been studying Matthew you know that Isaiah might have something to do with this. And you'd be right. This is easiest to see when it comes to Jesus talking about the light. We just saw in Matthew 4. So just a few weeks ago, in Matthew chapter 4, look at the previous page there in your Bible. Matthew 4.16, Jesus says, or Matthew says that Jesus moved to Capernaum because he was fulfilling Isaiah 9. Do you remember that? The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. The light theme is very important in Isaiah. The light is the symbol of God revealing himself to Israel. Of coming into the darkness. It's it's almost always tied to the Christ. And it's always tied to God bringing the new covenant. In Isaiah 42, when God talks about this coming Christ, this is what he says. Isaiah 42, 6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Now we know that the light is Jesus. Jesus. It's those of us who are Christians who have been in church for any time, we know Jesus is the light, right? He's the one who's come into the darkness to reveal himself to the people as their savior. Jesus even says so. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. I know that one. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 12, 46, I've come into the world as light. So that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Jesus is the light. He's the one that brings light to the world, the light to the nations. He fulfills prophecy in that way. And yet, in our passage, in verse 14, he says, You are the light you are the light of the world. He's taking Isaiah 42, verse 6 where it says, God will give the Christ as the light to the nations. Nations is another way of saying world. And Jesus says, that's you now. That's shocking, isn't it? If if you think about it, Jesus is the light, not us. And yet, here he is, plain as day, you are the light of the world. It's not a misunderstanding that's clear so how is that true then well we are identified with Jesus aren't we do you remember from the the beatitudes he's already told us that we're going to be poor in spirit and so receive him then we're going to be meek like him and we're going to hunger and thirst for righteousness like him and we're going to be merciful like him and we're going to be pure in heart like him and peacemakers just like him and we do all those things like him because to be a Christian means to die to ourselves and be raised to new life in him. That is the very heart of what it means to follow Christ. Christ. To be a disciple of Christ means we grow in Christ-likeness in our lives because we have died to ourselves and been raised to new life in him. He's our life. In Christ alone is our life. This goes back to our union with Christ. Do you remember learning about this wonderful doctrine in Colossians? Our union with Christ... He's the light. We're not the light in and of ourselves, but because our new lives as new creations are lived in Him, we are vessels for His light. We are a conduit for His light. We are the light because Christ is the light and we're in Him. We're the ones presented by Him before the nations as the light of Christ. What He means is we are the brightness from a physics point of view we're the the photons from the kingdom of heaven that shine into a dark world when people see us they're to see that we are from somewhere else because the only thing here is darkness so we can't possibly be from here if we are light we are light the way that the angels from heaven came into the world and people squinted and, and shielded their eyes because of the brightness of the angels we, we are the light the way that Moses coming down from Mount Sinai was so bright with the glory of God that he had to wear a veil we are light the way that creation sat in darkness in chaos until, until the word of God the very source of light said let there be light and there was light Christians, we are living witnesses to the effect of God's word on a dark, lifeless human soul. He shines into our darkness and we become light. We are then the vessels of God's presence in a dark, suffering world of hopelessness. Well, the light makes sense to us. We get that. That that light imagery is all over the Bible. But what about salt? Why is salt used here? Well, given the way that Matthew is training us to read, I hope by now that our first instinct is to look for Scripture to guide us. I hope we're learning how to read the gospels wisely it's kind of tricky though for us because salt is so common isn't it it's so common that we first think of salt for its usefulness we want to rush to the application and skip the work of understanding the text so we say well salt gives flavor so maybe we should be flavorful people Always ready to show kindness. Or salt preserves meat. So we should try and be the people that preserve the goodness in things. Or salt can be used to clean things. So maybe we should try to make things more pure. And those types of analogies are endless, aren't they? Because salt has a lot of uses. But that's not what Matthew's doing. It's not a matter of our usefulness. It's a matter of who we are. It's a matter of our identity. If, if usefulness were the aim, Jesus would have been much clearer. And he, he would have simply said, you are spice, so be flavorful. Or you are heat, so preserve things. Or you are clean water, so purify things. But he didn't. He said, we're salt. Well, salt, you need to understand, in the Old Testament, always accompanied sacrifices. Whether you gave a grain sacrifice or a meat sacrifice, the priest would always sprinkle salt on it when that sacrifice was placed on the altar. Salt was so much an important part of the sacrificial system that there was an entire room in the temple meant exclusively to hold salt. You think of a pile of salt so high because salt was so important. Leviticus 2.13 if you're going through the Bible this year, you're studying your Bible reading it little by little you're going to get to Leviticus soon don't give up when you get there, okay Leviticus 2.13 says you shall season all your grain offerings with salt you shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering with all your offerings you shall offer salt salt For Jews, hearing Jesus' teaching would have been a reminder of the covenant between God and his people. So here's what I want you to do. For just a moment, I want you to take those two words, salt and covenant, and pinch them between your thumb and forefinger. For just a little bit, hold that on your lap. Don't forget about salt and covenant and their connection between one another. The old covenant... For those of you who, well, just for everybody, the Old Covenant was the arrangement that God had made with the Israelites. All right? It was like a vow or a contract, for lack of a better word. God promised He would be their God and they would be His people. He would protect them and guide them and bless them, He would prosper them. And the Israelites were to respond with obedience and worship, and making his name known throughout the earth. You see that arrangement? God does this for the people. The people respond with worship. In that old covenant, sins were atoned for by the giving of sacrifices. So the sacrificial system sort of kept peace between the people's failings and God's demand for holiness. One of the sad realities of that old covenant, that old contract, was that That Israel repeatedly broke it. And they eventually ended up in exile because of it. But but even while Israel was suffering under the discipline, God said He would make a new covenant with them. He would make a new covenant with His people. Out of His mercy and love for them, He would bring a covenant that they couldn't break because it would be written on their hearts. tells us in Jeremiah. Well this new covenant is really really important church when it comes to the story of of redemption the big grand meta narrative that that God is telling us in scripture. It's very important that we understand this. This new covenant is especially important to us as as Gentiles as those outside of Israel because this is how we're brought into God's family. A, a, A lot of times when the coming new covenant is talked about in the old testament it accompanies words like good news that's another way of saying the gospel this new covenant is the restoration it's the making things whole it comes with the christ the christ is the one who initiate everyone knew the messiah the christ was the one who would bring in the new covenant and along with that, it would come with forgiveness. And it would come with God's kingdom coming here to earth. This is what people were anticipating. Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Hosea, nearly all the prophets. They all wrote about this promised new covenant that was coming. Isaiah even talked about it. In that passage we read earlier, did you notice it? Look again at Isaiah 42, six. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. A light for the nations. Isaiah is talking about the Christ. The Christ was promised to be given as a covenant for the people. And a light for the nations. And we've already talked about the way that in Christ we are the light here. What about the covenant? Or is that? Well, Jesus is the bringer of the new covenant. He's the one offered as a sacrifice to the world to bring us into right relationship with the Father. And what accompanied sacrifices in the old covenant? Salt did. You still have that pinch of salt? Salt and covenant go together. Salt was sprinkled on every offering. What Jesus is saying here. In fulfilling the old covenant is that the salt that accompanies the sacrifice isn't going away under the new covenant Jesus' disciples his followers you and me are the ones who accompany Jesus Christ the bringer of the new covenant we aren't the covenant bringers we aren't the covenant keepers Jesus is but we are to be so closely identified with Christ that it will be like salt on those old sacrifices this this way of understanding salt is especially clarifying when you think about what Jesus has just told us at the end of the Beatitudes that we would be persecuted for Christ's sake so the teaching is this if we follow him there will be trials there will be difficulty because we are with him just as Christ was sacrificed for sin as the bringer of the new covenant, so we will be persecuted with him and for him. To be a disciple of Christ means that we belong to Christ. We are in union with Christ. So all that he endures, we also endure. The servant, Jesus will later tell us, is it's not greater than his master. People are going to see us And they're going to see Christ in us. And some will hate us. And revile us. Following Christ is not a path to the easy life. It is a narrow path of difficulty and trial. A path that invites persecution. It is a path that requires that we die to ourselves, as Christ did. He's later going to say we have to take up our cross and follow him. Following Christ requires that we are crucified with Christ so that it isn't we who live, but Christ who lives in us. So, Paul's going to tell us, isn't he? That's who we are. Christian, that's not who you're becoming that's who you are salt and light so if you're living right now like you are still the center of your life if you haven't been crucified with Christ then you're not salt you haven't accompanied the sacrifice of Christ you haven't bore the cross and so what Jesus would say is you're not his disciple." In the same way, if the light of Christ is not burning brightly in you as as the light of the world going into the world he would say, well then you are not my disciple because salt and light is what disciples are it's a statement of fact not a statement of becoming well that moves us into the second section of of Jesus' argument point two on your notes What what Jesus wants us to see when he says, but if salt has lost its saltiness, there in the second part of verse 13, he wants to show us that if we truly are his disciples, then who we are can't be undone. We can't be anything else but salt. And salt can't not be salty. It can't lose its saltiness. I, I think we misunderstand this sometimes. It wasn't as if Jesus' contemporaries had really lousy salt that became unsalty. They had great salt. They had the Dead Sea. All they had to do was take a pan of seawater and let it evaporate in the sun for a while and they had the purest, best salt. There were mines at the southern end of the Dead Sea that produced some of the purest salt in the entire region. It enviable salt. Jesus's illustration in verse 13 is supposed to be absurd to the people listening. If salt has lost its taste, how, how shall its saltiness be restored? People would hear that and they would say, That's stupid. Salt can't lose its saltiness. And Jesus would say, Exactly. In the same way, light can't be darkness, it can't be not light so to make the point in verse 14 he says a city set on a hill can't be hidden you can't hide that people don't light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand and it gives light to all the house light shines in the darkness that's what it does so, so being light is a part of its nature just like being salty is a part of salts nature you can't hide a city on a hill, and it's absurd to put a basket on a light that defeats the purpose of what it's there for. What light is designed to do, because of its nature, is to shine in the darkness. Jesus is showing us the absurdity of even talking about unsalty salt in darkened light. He's saying to us in the same way if you are truly my disciples you'll show it. And how do we show it? Well by living it out. All of those beatitudes that we studied last week that's how you show your salt. That's how you prove to be light. And we're to do that to be meek and merciful and peacemakers and so forth always. Always. That means brand new Christians. When you're trying to figure out how to live the Christian life, look at the Beatitudes. Because that's what salt tastes like. Those those virtues that Jesus gives us are what make Christians salt and light in the world. Senior saints, I don't speak to you directly from the pulpit as often as I should. But I want you to listen to what Jesus is saying to you here. We don't at some point in our lives retire or age out of being salt and light. As if somehow you have shown enough salt and life and it's not required of you anymore. Or as if somehow the accumulated troubles of life, and I know that they're there, but somehow they exempt you from living out your faith in Christ. That is... Not so. Salt is who you are. You can't cease to be who you are in Christ. There are seniors that I've met in my life that have suffered and persevered and who carry with them unseen pain. And yet they live as if the very air they breathe has been given to them by Jesus. And because of that, there's a gratefulness and an an unexplainable joy in their life that just emanates from them. Theirs is truly the kingdom of heaven and no one could deny that they are citizens of that kingdom. They have grown saltier and brighter with age, not less so. It should be that way, shouldn't it? Someone who is known Jesus for 50 or 60 or 70 years, someone who has been a citizen of of his kingdom for that long should have such a brightness and saltiness about them. Even in their mourning, even in their weakness, when they can't move, even when their spouses have gone on before them. Something about the accumulated trials of life should have refined them to the point of what we would call attested genuineness of faith first peter says that attested genuineness of faith they're extra salty by the grace of god working in them they have identified themselves more and more with jesus christ so that fear and anxiety and bitterness have all but left them There are seniors like that. And there are others. Well, let's just say you have to wonder if they find joy in anything. The more you find your identity in Christ, the easier these things get the easier humility comes to you. The more your identity is in Christ, the hungrier you you grow in righteousness. The more merciful you'll be, the purer your heart will be, the more of a peacemaker you'll be, and the more likely you'll be to be so bright with Christ in you that people either want what you have or they hate you for it. Old and young though, everybody, Jesus Christ is to be so much at the core of who we are that whenever we speak or act or eat or sing, whenever we post stuff on the internet or go to work or live as singles or live as married people or raise children or when we gather and we worship, when we sit at home and relax, all that we do in this world is to be an overflow of who we are. In Christ, salt and light. Light because he is light, salt because we have died to ourselves and now live in him. We can't not be who we are. So the question then is, does that describe you? You knew that question was coming. (laughs) Does... Does the world see you living bright and salty in the joy of union with Christ or does the world see a cynical grouch? I want you to hear Jesus' warning for what it is. There's no such thing as salt that doesn't taste like it. And there's no such thing as hidden light there's no such thing as a Christ Christ follower whose life doesn't show it. Look at verse 13 again. That unsalty salt, which we can now understand as something that really isn't salt at all. Jesus said it's, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You see what he's saying? If you profess to be a follower of Christ but you're no different from the world then you're not a follower of Christ. That's a warning to us, isn't it? So there's the warning but he also gives us an encouragement. He doesn't leave us without an encouragement. And that takes us to the third part of his argument here. Look at verse 16. He says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So we see the purpose of why God has made us salt and light. Do you see it? So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. But then at the beginning, he has that word let. You see it? Let. To do that, we have to let or allow. Is light to shine. Jesus is acknowledging for us that there will be times when this is difficult and that, that it will take an act of the will. Though we are light, though we are salt, we won't feel like being who we are sometimes. And our temptation will be to be who we were before Christ. But Jesus says, be who you are. Let let who you are in him shine through. Even when you don't feel like it. Part of the reminder here, the good news to us, is that our salvation is into Christ by grace. And we are held and secured by his grace and his mercy. And we will Fail and we will fail frequently. But Christ is our sure and steady anchor. I think we're singing that next week, aren't we? I don't know. Christ is is the one who holds us. Christ never fails, and because he's the one that we've been born again into, and we're in him, his light never goes away. So we can still be light, as he is light and it couldn't be clear I mean, we've already talked about it for a minute but letting your light shine means living as Christ has called you your brightness your identity with Christ is to be seen in what? what does he say? in your good works people, people are to see us the world the earth is to see us and say glory to God this doesn't require a whole lot of explanation You were born again into Christ. You were made new as a Christian so that God would be glorified. That's why you are Christian. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says something very similar. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see the similarities? In Matthew you've been made salt and light so that you will be salt and light. Your light is to be seen in your works. In Ephesians you have been saved by grace as a gift of God and your salvation into Christ is meant to be visible. In your good works. Same concept, just different wording. Well, there's three things that I want to conclude with here three small observations from um, from verse 16. The first is obvious to be a follower of Christ means that we will live like it. Living like it doesn't make you a follower of Christ, don't put the cart before the horse. You are saved by grace through faith. Or as Jesus said in the Beatitudes, we are saved through a poverty in spirit. A a need that has been met by him. 100%. And then being found in Christ, now we live it out. I also want to point your attention, second thing, to who is watching us. Who is it? Who are the others? In verse 16. The ones who see our light shine. Who see our good works. Well in the context of our passage. The others is the world. We're the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. Our faith is lived out in the world. But because we're more comfortable together. Than we are out there. Sometimes our tendency is to come together in church and just be salt and light here. Isn't it? Or try to be. And there's some sense where that's good. We serve one another, we're loving one another, we're encouraging one another. That's biblical. But we're also meant to be equipped here so that we can be salt and light out there. The, the church is where we come to be trained. The church is where we admit our failings, where we confess our sins, where we acknowledge our brokenness. And then the church is where we're built back up in Christ and equipped to go into the world. They're the ones who need Christ. These pews don't need more salt and light. The world does. These pews are meant to be a place where diluted salt and dim lights come in and receive Christ and grow in him and become brighter and more pure so that when we go out from here we're ready and able to be who we are in Christ and finally the last thing we see that the purpose of our good works is the Father's glory look again at the end of verse 16 let your light shine before others so that They may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. We've been saved by grace. All these works have been set out by God in front of us for us to walk in. No credit to me and you. No boast for me and you. We have been saved into a joy and a hope in Christ that causes us to long for the coming kingdom. To live in humility because we know our salvation is nothing we could have accomplished. And we live mercifully because we will be shown mercy. And we're pure in heart because our hearts have been purified by Christ's work on the cross. And we're peacemakers because Christ has brought us peace with God. And we crave righteousness because Christ has made us righteous who gets glory for a life that flows out of those truths god does there's no other way you can't claim any of that we can't claim any of that there's no parties in honor of us for simply being who christ has made us to be the life of a christian is a shadow of the cross when people see the way we live, when they see our cross-shaped lives, they look up and they see Christ's cross and they give glory to God. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we long to be who you've made us to be. so many of us in here right now know, we acknowledge to you that we, when when others look at us, they don't see Christ's light in us. They don't see of people that have died to themselves. They see our selfishness. They see us complaining or grumbling. And our, our lights dim. And maybe we'll say to them, Oh, love Jesus. Love Jesus. He loves you. But then our lives don't at all reflect that truth. So, so we're asking you, Father, as a church that they would that our lives would be salty and bright and that through receiving the forgiveness that Christ offers us our response would be thanksgiving that overflows into a life of of love a life that that is built on what Christ has taught us a life that is being trans a life that's being transformed into Christ likeness by the power of your spirit help us father because we can't do this on our own in Jesus name amen